called Blasphemer Stoned. And the lesson text is, is Leviticus 24, 10 through 23. Our related scriptures is Exodus 21 through 21, Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 18, and Matthew 12, 30 through 32, and Acts 5, 1 through 11. The place is on Mount Sinai, and the time is 1,445 years before the birth of Christ, 1445 B.C. Let's bow our heads for a blessing on God's word before we begin this morning. Most kind, gracious, heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much again for your word. We thank you, Lord, for those that come out, Lord, to be taught this morning, Lord. And we pray, Lord, you bless each and every one of our teachers, Lord, that you would anoint them with the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that your word would go out and touch the hearts of those that are here, Lord. And the church, your 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 family would be revived, Lord, and that the ones, Lord, that don't know you as Savior would come to you, Lord, and accept your son Jesus Christ as Savior before it is too late. Lord, we pray for those that aren't with us, Lord, that you would uh, bless them and minister to their needs, Lord, and they'd be, a, be able to come back out and be with us real soon, Lord. We love you and we thank you for everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, again, our lesson starts Leviticus 24.10, and our scripture reading starts there, where it says, And the son of an Israelitish woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and, his, and this son of the Israelitish woman, and a man of Israel, strove together in the camp. And they put him in ward, and the mind of the Lord might be showed him. Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger, as he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. And he that killeth a beast shall make it good, a beast for beast. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. Ye shall have one manner of law as well for the stranger as for one of your own country, for I am the Lord your God. And we'll read our golden text together this morning. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Exodus 27. And I'll read our golden text illuminated for us. Our golden text illuminated says, the context of our golden text for this week is, of course, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Our verse is of the Third Commandment. Ooh, hold on, let me switch here. Lost my page. Here we go. The context for Golden Text this week, of course, is the giving of the Ten Commandments. Our verse is the third among the commandments and is echoed in the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed be thy name, from Matthew 6, 9. Although our verse is not taken from this week's lesson text, Leviticus 24, 10 through 23, it definitely refers to it directly. In our lesson text, a man was heard to curse the name of Yahweh in the course of fighting with another man. This man was taken into custody until Moses had a chance to seek the judgment of Yahweh concerning the man's punishment. The verdict handed down from the very mouth of Yahweh was that the man must be taken outside the camp of the Israelites and stoned to death. There was no room for mercy in the case of blasphemy against Yahweh. 
Verse 15 and 16 unequivocally states, Whosoever curseth his God shall bear his sin. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger, as he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. Now think about the way God's name is used and abused throughout our contemporary society. Is blasphemy against the name of God considered a serious offense? There are certainly no criminal statutes in it, of it in America, or if there are, they are considered antiquated and no longer enforced. In the various media, the abuse of God's holy name is commonplace, looked upon as merely a colorful form of verbal punctuation. In everyday speech among the unsaved, God's name is treated the same or sometimes even worse. As cultural values shift away from Christianity, Christians are standing out more clearly than ever before. Most of the many conventional phrases we consider blasphemous originate in Christian communities, as well-meaning but misguided oaths. Sincerely calling upon God the Father or the Lord Jesus Christ for help in various life situations. Presumably, they were an attempt to apply the Apostle Paul's admonition, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know that ye ought to answer every man. The problem is that this practice ignores the warnings of Jesus against all oaths. An old saying warns, The road to hell is paved with good intentions. These oaths soon fell to the use of unbelievers and quickly became vain speech that now brazenly dishonors the holy name of God and our Lord and Savior. One hallmark of the Reformation was the forbidding of such oaths on biblical grounds. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith warns to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and awesome name is sinful and to be abhorred. The name of the Lord is still holy. It must never be used vainly. Let us make sure that our own speech hallows that name at all times. And it's only been the last couple years that I've noticed on uh, TV, and, and I'll be honest, most where I actually notice it most at is NASCAR because I do enjoy car racing. However, uh, in the last two years, twice, they have cursed God in the, after a race and with no you know, punishment, no penalty, which is horrible. The fact that they can do that and it's not even chastised or looked down upon. They could slip another curse word in there and they may say something to them or, or at least apologize that it went through because it is live TV. But when they curse God, everyone turns a blind eye to it because they act like it's no big deal, even though that should be viewed as... As a, one of the most, most vulgar things that could be done on television. Uh, but the world we're living in, the society we're a part of, simply does not care about God anymore. And because of that, what was once punishable by death is now no big deal. In fact, we throw around the name of God so haphazardly anymore. Uh, sometimes we say, oh, and then say God, or we'll say, uh, using some other verb or context that we are not praying or not specifically talking about him. But we're using it as a form of a curse. And a lot of times, because there is no uh, English cuss word with it, we don't think it's a big deal. But we are at the same time not supposed to use the Lord's name in vain. In other words, we're not supposed to use it in a way that is not directly talking about him, speaking to him, focusing on him. Because any other way, we are using it in the place of a cuss word, even if the cuss word isn't there and is disrespectful and dishonor to God. And while society has accepted it, and I've even heard good Christian folk do it and not think much of it just because society does it, but it doesn't make it right. We need to strive for what God wants, not what um, society wants or even what the church world wants. There's a lot of things the church world is okay with that the Bible is not okay with. And we need to go with what the Bible says is okay so we are focusing on God's holiness and the reason we must reverence God's holiness. And we'll get into our questions this morning. Question one says, what nationality was the man who discussed in Leviticus 24.10? This man was a part of the Israelite community and subject to their 
program is man was not yet considered fully a part of the true congregation of the Lord, but was included in that group referred to as a mixed multitude. These were the people who had left Egypt along with Israelites. Yeah, so the man is half Israelite, he's half Egyptian. And this is one of the challenges of raising a child in a house with two different religions. Obviously, the Egyptian man was not Jewish. Uh, there's a good chance he may not have reverenced God or not believed in God. And this person, this man, as he's been raised up, but considering what he has done, we would assume is being taught his father's cultural values. Because a person raised in the Jewish tradition would have understood how big of a deal this is. He would have more of a reverence for God, and he would not have handled God's name in such a way. Uh, we can see the same thing with our children or adults today. If they do not handle the name of God or handle Jesus with reverence, we know they weren't raised in a church setting or maybe in a Christian household be a better way to put it. Um, they may have believed in Jesus, but the devil believes and trembles. Unfortunately, many of our people today believe and don't tremble. And we'd be a whole lot better off if people done a whole lot more trembling. Because we live in a day and time where everything comes above God and in reality nothing should come above God. If we look at hey, the way things are done in Bible days, people would give up their lives for God. They'd give up their homes for God, their families for God. They'd give up their jobs for God. They'd give up anything because God was number one. If God was the, you know, the two options, they chose God. But yet we see in our society, God is sort of something if we have time for, we do. If we've you know, got something else to do, we don't worry about God. We don't read, we don't pray, we don't think about Him. When we listen to songs, Christian songs, a lot of times are the last things people listen to, even if they are Christian folk. And there's nothing wrong with listening to music that is, is world music. However, uh, Christian music should become priority in our lives the way we were uplifted and edified in it. But all the same, we see, again, the environment people are coming from, the culture people are coming from. It was just a few years back, we had a Bible trivia thing we done at Logan High with the prayer club. And we have, if you've ever been to the uh, little theater at Logan, you've got three sections. We had three teams. They were competing to see who had the, knew, had the most Bible knowledge. And it was amazing how many kids that we all knew were raised in churches that had zero Bible knowledge. And we're not talking like deep philosophical thought. We're talking about who built the ark sort of Bible knowledge. And these are high school kids. So by high school, if you're raised in church, you should know who built the ark. You should know who parted the Red Sea. I mean, there should be certain things that you've heard and picked up along the way. And if you are raised in church, your parents are Christian parents, and I'm going to say 90% had no idea the answer to any of these questions... That's a big problem for your family and a big problem for your church. It's showing that something isn't working. Um, and again, considering we knew where lots of these kids went to church, you could even see what churches had better youth programs because their kids done better than other churches whose kids didn't do so well but attended faithful. It's a telltale sign, folks, of what the environment is. So we need to make sure we're raising our kids up to have a reverence for God. Not just, you know, know Jesus is their Savior and they die for Him, but know that they need to reverence the holiness of God and have a certain level of respect for God. Question two says, of what sin was this man guilty? Yes, he blasphemed. Um, the quarterly says during the scrum, he utterly blasphemed against the name of the Lord in a curse. He was immediately brought to Moses as this was clear violation of the law. 
And it goes on to say the prohibition against cursing or blaspheming in God's name had been clearly established, but the penalty for such offense had not yet been given, so the man was brought to Moses to determine what his punishment would be. It's funny, even though we don't have biblical law today, we have no biblical law whatsoever today, it was loosely at one point based on, on biblical law, but we've gotten way away from that today. Um, yet, we need to acknowledge as Christians that God chastises and disciplines his believers. So just because you're not going to get arrested for cursing God, not to, you know, you're not going to get arrested for committing adultery or drunkenness or lying or anything like back then, God will still discipline you. God is not going to allow his church, his children, to rebel against him, to live ungodly lives without disciplining them and chastising them. In fact, a true sign that you are a false convert is if you can do those things and have zero discipline of God. Uh, it's not to say Christians don't sin, but when Christians do sin, there should be a, a chastening or there should be a conviction placed upon you that you recognize your sin and that you are urged to turn from that sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are not receiving that, then you have a much larger spiritual problem and you need to make sure that you're right with God to begin with. That's why the Bible says examine yourselves and make sure you are truly in the faith, truly of the faith. You've got people like Judas Iscariot, who's a prime example of someone who sold out Jesus and even though he knew he'd done wrong, he never turned to God for forgiveness. He never acknowledged that God was a sword. He said he's repented unto himself. In other words, he felt bad about it, and he, he was sorrowful for it, and he gave the, the, the change back, trying to make amends for it, but he didn't acknowledge in the day the only way he could make up for it is to go to God and seek forgiveness. And what did he do? He wound up killing himself because he never could ease that conscience, never could ease the, convic the, uh, the condemnation that was upon him. And feeling guilty because you got caught isn't the same as Holy Spirit power conviction. There's plenty of people who feel bad they got caught and feel bad they're going to face consequences. But you should feel bad because you have broken the law of the one who saved you, the one who created you, the one who will someday glorify you, the one who sealed you with the Holy Spirit, the one who gave you all that you have. That is where your conviction should draw to. Not that, hey, you know, mom and dad caught me and I'm going to get grounded. Or, hey, the cops caught me and I'm going to have to pay a fine or whatever. No, it should be the fact that you have robbed God of glory when you sinned against his holiness. So let us make sure that when we experience the conviction, that our conviction is not man conviction, but godly conviction that draws us to a place of repentance. Question three says, why was this such a serious offense? It is a complete moral failure for a sinful human being to curse the name of God who is righteous and holy. And with the culture of that time, just to curse a person's name was to make an attack on that person. Um, imagine if someone used your name as a cuss word. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be offensive to me. Um, I mean, that's sort of the biggest slap in the face you can be given. And this isn't just being done to some individual. This is being done to God, the creator of the universe, the only holy being that exists in any realm, and yet they are cursing him, are using him in the place of a curse word. And when they do that, it's, it's literally the largest insult you can give to God. We think about 
when Christians don't do what they should do or when they lay out of church for long periods of time or do these things. Think about how insulting it is to God. Well, imagine how insulting it is to turn him into a thing of insult, a thing of curse. Um, and again, yet we, we do it in so many ways. And the problem that I see so often is not even what people says, but it's what they do with their actions. A lot of times they may never come out and curse God, but yet with their actions they're showing how little they think of God. If you're a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, and yet you don't have any place of honor of Him in your life, that's, that's a big insult to God. If he saved you and you can't find time to pray or to read his word or to serve him or whatever, um, that's a big insult to God. Um, I, I used to say if you attend church, that's about the minimal service you can do. But in today's day and time, that's that's more than what a lot of people are doing. And I'm not talking people who are dodging COVID and this and that. I'm talking about people who are just laying out of church, uh, which are 90% of the people not attending church at this point are not scared. They're not attending because they just simply are using an excuse because they wind up at Walmart and restaurants and places. They don't wind up here. Um, that being said, that is an insult to God. We must be very careful to realize that God, again, is perfect. He's holy, he's righteous, and he's sovereign. And we are simply, I mean, we were created from the dust of the earth. We are literally dust. And we will go back to being dust someday. We should not ever allow ourselves to be on level ground with God or greater than God. And I even see this with salvation. When man thinks he can save himself, or when man thinks he can keep himself saved... You are knocking God down, putting yourself up here. We must realize that we are just wretched, filthy sinners in need of salvation, which God has, and He so graciously gives it to us, unmerited, undeserving. And we literally should grovel at Him for just giving us the opportunity to escape hell and go to heaven. And unworthy, unworthy of Him, and nothing we can do can make us worthy. But too often we make it all about me. Even, you even can hear it in hymns. And I love hymns. I love contemporary Christian as well. But so many times when we look at the hymns even, look at the lyrics, we become me-focused sometimes. We shouldn't be celebrating me when we come to church. We celebrate him when we come to church. Uh, and that's a lot of things that we see get focused on the world. We need to focus it more upon God. Number four, what do the people do with the man after he cursed God? Yes, and that touches on question five too there. And what we see here is they're waiting upon God's will. And that's the title for that section accordingly, waiting for God's will. And as they're waiting on God's will, they don't want this to be something that they have to do. They want it to be something that God desires of them to do. Um, this is a huge crime against the Lord, and yet they know there must be some form of punishment, but they need godly guidance. Let me tell you something. Sometimes when we're dealing with the sin of people, we have to wait patiently. There, there's plenty of times I see someone who is getting ready to get themselves in a spiritual mess and me being uh, someone who wants to act fast, I want to jump in and do something, but sometimes you have to wait on 
God. You have to handle things a certain way. That's why the Bible, I think, lays out the discipline process for Christians very slowly. You notice it isn't like an instantaneous uh, dismissal. There's a slow, gradual process that you see someone who is in a sin problem, a brother or sister, you go to them one-on-one, talk to them, pray with them, and then you see the situation does not improve. You bring someone else, talk to them, pray with them. If that don't work, you bring them in front of the church. Talk to them, pray with them. If that don't work, then you dismiss them. But look how many steps it took before it ever got to that point. Because God's goal is not just to dish out punishment. God's goal is to bring back into intimacy, to bring back to a closeness with Him. That's what He desires. I say the same thing about punishment for kids. I think the one thing, the worst thing you can do in punishing kids is just focus on punishing. Punishment is important. Uh, having uh, consequences for actions is important, but that consequence does not change the behavior. What is the point in the consequence? You're going to spend your whole life beating a kid to death and never going to teach him anything. Uh, you have to have a talk. You have to have a purpose for the punishment you are giving to reform or change the behavior. God is the same way when we sin. When God convicts us, it is not to uh, to remove us or to beat us up or to chat or to whatever. It is to change us. He wants us to repent and get closer to Him, to draw nigh to Him. And the Bible says we draw nigh to Him, He'll draw nigh to us. So when we sin, we experience the conviction of God. It shouldn't be, well, God don't love me no more. Look at the mess that I'm in now. I I don't got no one. No, God loves you is the reason He's convicting you and disciplining you and trying to have closeness with you. The Bible says a parent that doesn't chastise their kids flat out hates them. That's paraphrasing, but that's what it says. Uh, So if God loves us and does not hate us, he has to discipline us. That's the way it works. That's the biblical layout for it. So we know, again, that discipline that comes from God, it comes from a place of love. It doesn't come from a place of anger. Uh, When I was... Growing up into my adult years, I felt that God was this big old mean God with like thunderbolts trying to destroy things and just hellfire and brimstone. That really isn't the picture of God. God is love. God wants closeness. God wants fellowship. God wants intimacy. He provides everything for us to have that. But we have to be obedient in order to have that closeness. Salvation is free. Don't do anything to get it. But closeness and fellowship takes some work. We've got to do our part when it comes to that. Because it's just like, I've said, use an example of a marriage. You can be married to someone and have no love whatsoever. No intimacy, no closeness. It takes work. That marriage is, you know, you just sign, you don't even sign a paper anymore. They've actually done away with that. You give, right now, if you give a pastor a paper, he signs it, turns it in, you're married. You don't do anything. Don't need witnesses, don't need nothing in today's world in West Virginia. Just a pastor got to turn a paper into the courthouse. You're legally married. Boom. Uh, that's changed in the last 10 years. But to have that closeness in that marriage, you're going to have to do something. You've got to put some work, spend some time together. It's the same thing with God. You've got to put some work to have closeness and have that intimacy with God. Number five. Why do they need to wait for God's... Well, we hit number five. Let's do number six. Number six says, Who was responsible for carrying out the final punishment God commanded? Everyone. Um, and I think that sometime in the modern church where we got off on that and, and we sort of messed it all up. And the lesson text actually says, Finally, all the people were instructed to execute the man by stunning him to death. The entire community was responsible to root out the sin among them, but only at the clear direction of the Lord. Now, 
Obviously, we're not going to stun anybody to death. That's not going to happen in today's world. That would be murder, and we'd all go to prison for that, as well as being you know, punishment of God. However, we are still responsible for rooting out sin. Now, a lot of times, here's the mistake. A lot of times, churches and people think, well, it's the pastor's job to root out all the sin in the church. Well, I got news for you. Pastors have no special powers. We don't know all the sin that goes on in people's lives. When you leave this building, unless you know we're you know unless we're hanging out on the weekend or something, and I see some, I don't necessarily know everything going on in your world. Uh, nine times out of ten, I don't. There's plenty of times you all show up and say, "How is Sister So and So?" and I'm saying, "I guess she's okay." Why would well, she been in the hospital for a week? And I didn't have a clue what's going on because I spend most of my time at work, and then I come home and work more, and then eventually I pass out in my chair and go to sleep. During my day goes. So if someone don't call me, I generally don't know what's going on. That's being said, that's why it's the entire community's job to root out sin. That means if you have a you know, sister or brother in the church that you're close to, as we have circles in our churches, every church does it. I've been to church with 300 people that still have circles that they fellowship and spend time together, and that's normal, that's okay. But inside that circle, you should be each other's keeper. You should look for issues in your, your sister or brother's life that you know is kind of slippery slope and help them root that out. It's not to be the holier-than-thou Christian that's better than the other Christian. No, it's, it's leaning on each other. As we sung Leaning on Everlasting Arms, we lean on Jesus. We also lean on each other to help us do better. Uh, does that mean that your, uh, your criticism is always well-received? No, of course not, but it should be. If someone can b- biblically show you where in Scripture that you're doing wrong, and, and try to help you do better about it, you should be receptive to that help. Um, I, and it's not always that way. Sometimes people get really upset, and I'll be honest with you, they're a lot more receptive to your help sometimes than they are my help sometimes. Because they'll, you know, you look at me, a lot of people says, well, the pastor, he's getting judgy and doing this and doing that. But when they see someone that they're close to, that they have a you know, close friendship relationship with, come to them and say, hey, I, you know, I know you ain't been to church in a while. You everything okay? You know, is there any issues that we need to talk about or need help with? You know, what's going on? Sometimes they're a lot more receptive to that kind of help. And the thing is, the Bible says a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, where a little bit of sin can destroy a church. A little bit of sin can destroy a family. A little bit of sin can destroy a community. I know marriages today that have dissolved, and if someone had stepped in that was a Christian and said, hey, let me help you all work this out, let me mediate here, it might have been saved. A lot of times we're too afraid to get in each other's business, but the bottom line is, as brothers and sisters of Christ, that's part of the local church's job, is to really just be there and to be supportive and being loving and being caring and trying to help each other through whatever issues that we're going through. If you are having an issue in this in your life, this church family should be the first place you go to to seek help. Whether it be help with maybe maybe you need help um, working on something on your home, you need grass cut, can't get it cut, you need to ride somewhere, you need help with food, you need help with fine, whatever you need help with, your church family should be the first place you feel comfort in going to and seeking help. Because we should be just like blood family here. We should be close as we can be. So again, we should be uplifting, edifying. We should be helping each other chasten and improve and do better. Think of yourself as personal trainers. I could use a personal trainer. It probably help me get a little bit better shape. But a personal trainer, they come to you. They look at your diet. They give you workouts to do. Way to strengthen yourself physically. Well, the church is designed to strengthen ourselves spiritually. That way, we, if you look at each other and say, hey, you know, let's, let's read through the book of John together. Me and Sadie done this during COVID. We was reading through Genesis. And it wasn't planned out, but I found out she was reading through Genesis, so I started reading through Genesis. That way we could talk about it as we went. And we started making it to a race to so get the furthest each day. That way we could talk about it in the evenings. And in the end, we had a great fellowship time as dad and daughter talking about the book of Genesis. 
Well, you don't have to just do this in your homes. Uh, a lot of you are, are empty nest right now. You, you may be living by yourself, but you know what? You have a social circle. You talk to You call each other on the phone. Well, imagine if instead of calling each other in gospel, we called each other and talked about the Bible. How much more productive would that be? But we don't do that enough. We talk about everything under the sun. We don't talk enough about God. We need to make God more the primary focus of our relationships. Question seven, why is human life so sacred and valuable to God? And yet, we look at life so haphazardly anymore. Life and death, just no big deal. And it's in several formats. We see it with the abortion laws currently that are being passed in the country around the world. They, uh, I don't know if it got passed or not. I think it failed. But they was trying to pass a thing this week in our federal government that uh, there could be zero restrictions placed on abortion at the state level, uh, which is a terrifying thing to see being pushed through legislature. And it was pretty overwhelmingly supported, which is also terrifying. Uh, but it's going through. Not only that, but we've seen it with COVID. I mean, how many people really have been just haphazardly and could care less about each other's safety when we first got started with all this? I mean, they just flat out just didn't care. And we even see it now. We see people trying to hide the fact that they're positive and going to school or going out into society, going to ball games and stuff, knowing that they're carrying it, yet they're going out and exposing people. And they say, well, it's no big deal. Most people survive it. And many do, but many don't. Um, so it again shows how little we value the lives of others. We should be doing everything in our power to protect life in all formats, whether they are you know, in the womb or they are 800 years old. We should be doing what we can to protect the lives of those around us. Um, sometimes that means that we've got to do a little bit extra. But the bottom line is if we do something to cause death, even unintentional, it is still murder. Uh, you, we, we, are, we can be viewed as the, the crime is uh, unintentional manslaughter in the legal system. But, you know, at the same time, when we see things like abortion, it's celebrated. Um, I had a friend went to a country music concert a couple years ago, and they had a big song celebrating abortion at the, when this, the concert started. And this, you know, this is a country music concert. It's really more sort of old-fashioned like that was going on there as well. There's nowhere that is safe. And it's the same thing as we see people going out here and drinking and driving or, or doping or whatever and getting people killed. And a lot of times they just don't think nothing about it. And it's sad. That's where we got that death means so little in today's world. We should always view life as sacred, period. God is the giver and taker of life. And until it comes time for him to call that individual home, uh, anyone who does anything to speed the process up is sinning flat out. Um, I got in a little bit of heat last year when I told, <clears throat> I told people before the vaccine stuff was out and they had all these mask mandates and people were going crazy and burning masks. And I said, if you do that, knowing that you're going to make someone sick and possibly kill them, that's not a very Christian attitude. But I stand by that statement. I mean, if we can do something to protect another individual, we ought to be doing it, period. Um, and when we don't, it's, I, mean, I think of my own children. I do anything I can to protect my children's safety, but we shouldn't just stop at our household. It should be for all those that we come into contact with. I think it's even true for our mothers. I think a lot of times uh, churches have failed 
to do what they could to encourage mothers to keep babies. A lot of times you have someone who is unwed and they feel like there is no hope and no one to reach out to. And what do they do? They go and commit an abortion because of that. In reality, we as Christians and the worldwide should be reaching out to them and say, you know what? We love you. Don't make that decision. If you need help, let us help you. If you need financial help, let us help you get connected with financial help. Let us do what we can to make sure that this baby has a life and that it is raised in a Christian household. You know, we should be doing that as Christians, but too often we're not. That's why we see... As a Christian organization, I saw a couple months ago, and they were funding uh, ultrasound machines for family centers. That way that a woman could see the baby in the womb before she made the decision. And it had a huge impact because most women who saw that living baby and heard the heartbeat, they would they kept it. But too often, it's the world is pushing them to, hey, get rid of it when there's other options out there that we're not pushing up. As Christians, we need to make sure that life is being the one that's pushed for all reasons at all times. Uh, number eight, well, how is human life differentiated from animal life in God's law? The difference between the value of human life and animal life is clearly seen in verse 18. Human life is protected to the point that whoever takes the life must lose his own, whereas one who takes the life of someone's animal must just pay restitution. Yeah, and thank God for it because I love my burgers and I don't want to give them up. So I thankfully that it is not a sin to eat meat. Uh, it's actually addressed in the Bible that it's not a sin to eat meat. And if a person chooses not to eat meat by their own choosing, that's fine. That's their, their choice they make. Uh, but it, as far as spiritually, it is not a sin to do. Now, that being said, there's certain, certain several points when you get out about this law situation. Um, before this law here was established, what we have found historically, there was a thing that existed called the Code of Hammurabi. It was the first legal system in the world. It was created in Mesopotamia. And it was very different than what God has given us here to the Israelites. In that law, the law was, first off, different levels of society, different laws. If you was a slave, you didn't have the same law as a slave master. And you didn't have the same law as a, a nobleman. Uh, every, the higher up you were, the more relaxed the laws was. Well, in Bible times, there's no specifying here as we read this about what, where they're at in society. Everyone is equal. And that's important because today, in God's eyes, there he is no respecter of persons. A person that is in sin and does not repent and come to Christ will receive the same punishment, whether they are poor, whether they are rich, whether they are black, whether they are white, whether they are whatever. Uh, we are all equal and all in sin and all in need of a Savior. And the punishment is the same. Hell is the same regardless if you are the murderer or the, the thief or you're just the society views good person who rejected Jesus. Hell is all the same. So we see that the penalty is still the same today in the eyes of God. But not only that, while we look at this law as being a little bit, sometimes, I mean, I've always heard, well, this is so strict. It's such a strict law. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The reality is this law was actually designed to be less harsh than what the world was already doing. Because what the world was doing is if I came along and I, you know, stabbed your cow to death, people were going along and stabbing that guy to death. Uh, then the next one would come along and would kill his kids. They tried to up the punishment every single time. Well, God said we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to make all punishment level. We're going to make sure that they can't go to some crazy extreme. We're going to try to make every punishment fit the crime. So God is actually reining people in with this law and actually showing mercy compared to what was going on in the world at the time. So we should not view God's law as being some great burden. We should view it as, again, an act of love, an act of mercy, an act of grace. 
Um, number number nine. How were the most how were most cases involving injury to a person or his property resolved? And there is a place for restitution in today's world. Let's not be deceived. God is a God of mercy and He is a God of grace. However, if I wrong you, I need to make it right. If you wrong each other, you need to make it right. To the best truth, but we can't always make it up for it completely. Sometimes it's almost impossible to do. But we should do all that we can to protect the fellowship of brothers and sisters. And there have been times... And I try to make sure that I keep, I believe communication is the key in any relationship, including a church relationship. And there's times I've had to go to you, you all, and say, listen, I didn't mean what I said the way I said it, and if I offended you, I'm sorry. Because I'm humble enough to do that. I don't I think we should all have humility about ourselves and realize that we're not none of us are hundred percent always in the right. And when we're not, we gotta make restitution for what we've done wrong. I told the story here before years ago when I was at Logan Middle School, and this young lady now is a grown woman and graduated college, but she was a sixth grader back then. And she came along, and I had a thing of popcorn, and I was in a really, really bad mood, and I had set some aside, and it wasn't something I was going to eat. It was just set to a side, and she'd come along, got a piece, and ate it. And I absolutely just lit into that kid. I mean, I was hateful as all get out. And then once she left, I realized she was just doing what she would have done any other day when I wouldn't have said anything whatsoever because I knew her. I knew her family. We'd been, we'd been to church together. You know, I, I knew them all. It wasn't like it was some random person. But yet, because I was in a bad mood, I got I acted really harshly to that kid. And she left, and I had to hunt her down about an hour later during lunch and apologize to her because I realized what I said could, had nothing to do with her. It come from something else going on in my life. We have to be very, very careful because we all find ourselves in that situation where we say things that we don't really mean or do something that we really don't mean to do. And sometimes the devil just takes our words and twists them to where it comes out in a way that really doesn't mean to come out. We must be watchful. Our words are very powerful. Our tongue is, is, is very powerful. It's, the Bible describes one of the most powerful muscles in our body because of the impact it can have. I know people in this very community that will not go to church because of something that was said to them at some church 50 years ago. That person may be dead now. And it's easy for us to say, well, they need to just get over it. Sometimes church hurt is hard to get over because the people you go to church with is people you feel that will never hurt you, never wrong you. And then when it happens even accidentally, the impact can be very, very, very strong. That's why it is important, it is critical to make amends. And sometimes making that amends really may not even be your fault. But I'm sorry is two words that has a huge impact that we can all say a little bit more and have a whole lot bigger uh, love toward those around us than what we currently have. Uh, number 10. What safeguards were established by the principle of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? Yeah, so as I said earlier, what was happening was basically there was no legal system. So you done me wrong, I'm going to do you more wrong. That way you don't do me wrong again. It's very much a, a, a legal, lawless system. And even in our community, 
uh, teaching West Virginia history and studying our local area. There wasn't a lot of law in this area in Hearts back in the day because it was kind of isolated. So a lot of times it was, hey, you stole my pig, I'm going to shoot your cow, or we're going to shoot you, or whatever. And it just it just kept on trying to be the tougher and the badder guy to keep the punishment for, for, from being coming back and hurting them again. That's not the way God operates. God wants, the, wants fairness. And the bottom line is God is a fair and a just God. We see that. Now, here's how we're going to do the gospel application to this. As God is a just God and a fair God... That means God could not allow sin or imperfection to enter into heaven. If God allowed sin to go unpunished, He is not fair and He is not just. He is a corrupt God. So knowing that God is fair and God is just, God must punish sin. Has to happen. Which means, because the Bible says we've all sinned, we've all felt short of the glory of God, we all deserve a penalty. The only way for God to be just is for that penalty to be poured out on someone. Now, there is one of two options that we all have to choose. Either he pours our penalty out on us, we face the penalty of God, we're cast into hell for all eternity where we'll face the torments of God, or we accept Jesus Christ's payment for our sins and we let the, the payment, the penalty, be poured out on Jesus has to be one or the other. There is no other way. It's two choices. There isn't a third option. And we all make the choice of which one we choose. And if we don't make a choice, we accept the penalty. Think of it as a court case. If you have the opportunity to make a plea deal and your attorney never comes forward and presents any plea deal to the judge, you're eventually, eventually going to face the penalty that's been dished out by the courts. Well, as God is a judge and we are in his courtroom, if we don't go to Jesus and allow Jesus to take our penalty and accept his free pardon and gift of salvation, then we know by not making a decision, we will receive the penalty. That means we'll be at that great white throne judgment the book of Revelation chapter 20 talks about where he looks at the person and he sees their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life and he sees that their sins have broken the law of God and he says, Depart from, ye that work, depart from me ye that work iniquity for I never knew you and he cast them into that lake of fire where they burneth forever. Forever. Penalties are final. When a judge makes a, a sentence, that sentence is final. Once, once we've made that decision, once we have faced God, it is over. That's why while we are here, we need to make the right decision. Because when we see the holiness of God, the perfection of God, and we see our sinful selves, that we are sinful. And if you don't think you're sinful, you need to get saved. Because that's the only way to get saved, to recognize you're sinful. And when we see our sinful selves, it should show us we need Jesus. And without Jesus, there is simply no hope. Point blank for anyone, anyone who's ever breathed the breath of life. So I encourage you this morning, if you've not made that decision, I encourage you to make that decision this morning to make Jesus Lord of your life and your Savior. That You don't have to face that penalty. You don't have to face the wrath of God and you can escape uh, the condemnation and receive eternal salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord.